Uh, it's good to be together, isn't it? Now, I know you're tempted, this warm weather, the sleep-in factor, uh, I know you have it, but you are like the most spiritual because you're at the early service. Yeah, we've heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it is exciting to be together, and every week, hopefully, when you drive onto this campus, you recognize that you are the church. Uh, that this, this facility, this place, isn't the church you are. And so you collect yourselves and come together as a body and you sing songs, hopefully that remind you of the hope that we have together and hopefully that as you fellowship with one another, you're encouraged about the hope that you have in Christ, but you are the church. And so the, the responsibility for the bride falls on us together. And so every week as you gather or as you leave this place as the church, uh, you're responsible from Monday to Saturday about the bride and the church. I hope you feel that. Now, that's not a guilt or that, but a sense of excitement, a sense of responsibility. And as we gather, we're to call ourselves and to remind ourselves what we're really about. And we have chosen a a new series for the summer. Uh, We... We chose the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible this morning, would you, uh, you can get one if you want to off of the racks. You're more than welcome to pop up and get one. It's the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are going to do all summer in Ecclesiastes. Anybody read the book of Ecclesiastes? Yeah, a lot of people don't teach this because it's not a lot of an agreement on what it really means. So uh, here we go. We're going to try to figure out together um, in this book. This week, Trish and I... We celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. Um, yep. I know, all that applause is for Trisha. <laughs> and I agree. Uh, it was sitting, uh, we went to Cedarburg, and we uh, actually had stayed at the Washington house. That's where her mom had been for years, meeting her sisters, so there was some cool nostalgia for us there, but... We sat at a restaurant, and I sat there looking at Trisha thinking, oh my gosh, we actually got married. You ever had one of those moments of, we did this, and we just, we have four kids, and we've been married for 25 years. It was like one of those, wow, how ignorant we were when we first got married. And, and it wasn't an insult on, on our relationship. It was more just one of those freak-out moments. You know what I mean? Have you ever had a freak-out moment? Like... You look at the person, you're saying, wow, we did that. We, we did that. Uh, we're going to dive into a book that really talks about literally this question is, what is life about? It's one of those freak out moments where you sit back, and it might be an event that's hit your life. It could be a person that's in your life. It's just one of those moments where you sit and ask yourself the question, Wow, where did it go? Where did time go? Did we really do this? What are we doing? And I'll have those, I have to be honest, I'll have those. I have those uh, sometimes more often than not in asking the question, what's life about? And so we are going to be introduced to uh, a man named Solomon. And I want to give you a little bit of backdrop about Solomon so that you understand a little bit of the context uh, of what we're dealing with here. Now, Solomon was uh, 
son of David. He was second son of King David and Bathsheba. If you know the story of David and Bathsheba, uh, David commits adultery. Not only that, he commits murder uh, by killing Bathsheba's husband. Uh, and so there's uh, great punishment from uh, God through that uh, sin that affects the entire nation of Israel. Solomon is the third king of Israel and actually will take Israel to its, its high point in its, its history. He built the first temple in Jerusalem. We went on our Israel trip again, and we get to go to Jerusalem. We get to go to the temple and see the Temple Mount on Mount Moriah where Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac. And this is where Solomon builds the first temple. None like it ever uh, to be built again. Uh, he had 700 wives and 300 mistresses. Uh, it was a known fact that, that Solomon struggled. He had th- some would argue that he had three sins that was uh, his demise. One was his lust uh, for women. One was his lust for wealth. And the third was the lust for military power. They're actually the three things that God said don't do. Don't marry uh, a bunch of wives. He said also don't acquire for yourself too much wealth. And the third thing he said, do not build for yourself chariots. So we see a little bit of this picture. Solomon reigned for about 40 years. Listen to this. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. He wrote over 1,000 songs, uh, many of which songs are written today that we will sing um, from the Psalms. But he also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon about the pursuit uh, of a lover. And it's to be a metaphor, obviously, of God's relationship with us, but also one with husband and wife. Now, Solomon, it's important for you to know, surpasses really all of the kings and rulers in wealth and wisdom of that time, and some would argue even today. Now, just a little bit about his wealth. And so I like some of the factoids. Some of these don't really matter much in our future study. But just to give you a little bit of perspective, some will argue and say that Solomon's Wisdom and wealth was so vast that he collected from people that would travel just to see his wisdom from all over the land. Queen uh, Sheba, the Queen of Sheba was one of them. Uh, uh, She came, but also uh, he collected about 1.1 billion in wealth per year of his reign. And so they said that he would just get gold and more gold and more gems and more jewels. And so he was crazy wealthy and people just kept coming to see his wisdom and wanted to bring gifts. That just gives you a little bit of perspective about him. Now, we know the famous story of Solomon's wisdom, right? Solomon, it's the two women that said, this is my baby. And, and in order to figure out which one it really was, he said, well, let's cut the baby in half. And the one woman, the real mom says, no, let her have her. It's this wise king. And so where did Solomon get this wisdom? Let's talk about that for a minute. This goes all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 3. And it gives us the picture of an earlier Solomon in his early years. It says the king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. And that was uh, the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. We find in the early years that Solomon was a very humble uh, worshiping uh, king that loved God dearly so much that he would offer he offers a thousand burnt offerings on this altar at Gibeon then the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and said ask for whatever 
you want me to, and I'll give it to you. Says that now the Lord, my God, you, and this is Solomon responding to uh, the Lord, says, Lord, my God, you've made your servant a king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child. Do not know how to carry out my duties. He says, your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a, uh, of you have chosen, a great people, too numerous for me to count or number. So look at verse 9. It says, so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? You see a humble Solomon seeking God's discernment in his life to be ruler. All right, that's important for us to see, and you'll see that in a moment. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this and said to him, since you've asked for this and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, Solomon lived to about 80, uh, he says, and, and nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and ministering justice, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so there will be no, there'll, there'll never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth, honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. So Solomon asks for discernment. But God says, because you didn't ask for anything else, of these other things, I'm still going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to make you uh, above everyone else. You are going to have great success. It's pretty amazing. And this is where Solomon begins at a very young age as king. Now what you're going to find that Solomon ends up in a very different place in his latter years. And if we were to, to attach a word to it, it would be the word arrogance. We read here, arrogance is a distorted view of oneself and of reality. Humility, in contrast, is seeing matters as they really are. You see, Solomon begins his journey very humble and broken, recognizing he's young and he doesn't have the ability to do what God wants him to do and is seeking God's help. In fact, as we look at this, it's, he sees matters as they really are. But over time, wealth, wives, his lusts for power and military conquest and all the things he has, he becomes arrogant. He, becomes, he has a distorted view of himself in reality. So we see that early on in this journey, though, Solomon is going to write a book called the Proverbs. And as I said earlier, he had about 3,000 Proverbs. Now I want to contrast these two books because he writes Proverbs as a very young man, he writes Ecclesiastes toward the end of his journey, and you're going to see a big difference. So Proverbs uh, largely is not a narrative. It's, it's uh, a random collection of wise sayings. Uh, it's not even largely religious. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean that it's not inspired, it's not God's word. It's just they're, they're good things to do. You could not know God and begin to apply the Proverbs and say, these work. You know, if you work hard, you will receive some sort of profit from your labor. I mean, they're very simple proverbs, and some of them very profound, but they're not necessarily religious. Um, they instruct on the patterns of life. It's Solomon's observations about, it seems like they're more of a collection of cause and effect truths. In other words, when you do this, this will happen. If you pursue this, this most likely will happen. And we see that Solomon's spiritual life is largely around these basic patterns or truths. Does that make sense? 
And so these are the earlier years of Solomon. But we'll look at Ecclesiastes now. Ecclesiastes is a narrative. In fact, it is ex- it's an examination or examinating the meaning of life. It's this, this discourse of what one they'll call the teacher, and it's himself. And it largely points towards God, but it's at the very end. You're going to find that the teacher is not necessarily looking for much of a conversation, but he is, he's talking about, uh, about his perception of life. Uh, he warns man that he has no control of life, very different than patterns of life. It's like Solomon now, even though he wrote many of these Proverbs, is like, wow, I thought that when you worked hard you got this, but I'm seeing that doesn't always work out. I thought that when you stayed away from this, God would give you this, but that doesn't always work out. He sees injustice. He sees pain. He sees the, his own failings. And so Solomon is at a very different place in his journey. It's a presentation of life's questions. I, I thought it was so brilliant last week, John Dixon, uh, in his addressing uh, uh, the idea of, of pain and suffering in God's perspective. And if you haven't watched that, I'd encourage you to do that because it's such a powerful picture of really, I think, where Solomon's at. Solomon is experiencing great pain and seeing a lot of suffering around him and recognizing, maybe for the first time in a long time, his own arrogance and his own frailty. And so this is in the latter years of Solomon, and we see this. Now, these two books sometimes have been postured as they're in conflict. Some would say that, that Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the reason people don't teach is because they're completely opposite. And in, in some cases, they are. What I, I is reading some commentary is very interesting. Uh, largely, I would say, yes, they're intention, but I would say they're almost a balance. Couldn't we say that most of us, in our younger part of our life, we're, we are very cause and effect. We're very much about success. We're very much about uh, the basic, I'm going I'm to get good grades. And if I get good grades, right, there's a proverb. If I get good grades, I can probably go to the good school that I want to go to and get the right education. And if I get that right education and do well there, I can get the right job. And there's a lot of this success and cause and effect part of our lives. But there seems to be a middle point. And I don't know when it is, it, whatever that point in your life, it could be because of pain or suffering. But at some point you hit this place where everything shifts. You realize that doesn't always work. It's not always true that if you work hard, you get what you work for. It's not always true that if if you save and, and are frugal with your finances, that you can always have the things you want later on in life. It could be that disaster strikes. It could be that you're, the lot in life that you get completely wrecks what you thought was so much of a cause and effect world. You hit that point where you recognize you are questioning your significance. Do I really matter? I mean, some of us experience so much pain in your life that you start to ask the question, what is really life about? And this is where Solomon's at, and this is why Ecclesiastes was our choice, because we feel like it's questions that a lot of us ask. Because aren't you asking that question? What is life about? 
when you're at the hospital for yourself or a family member or a friend, aren't you asking that question, what is life about? When it doesn't work out and finances aren't working out and the things that you dreamed of having at a younger age aren't working out, aren't you asking that question, what is life about? When people disappoint, aren't you asking that question? And so we find that Ecclesiastes is not necessarily going to give us this great insight on some great answers of figuring life out, but it's asking the questions that we are asking. Now just a moment about this, about inspiration. We often say that our Bibles, which is true, our Bibles are inspired, we believe as Christians, that our Bibles are inspired. That means that God inspired writers to write these words down, and so everything in this book has purpose and reason. It doesn't mean, though, that everything written is here is something that we should literally actually do. There are many stories of people who are godless that God allows to be written about in this book that give us a bigger picture, a bigger narrative of God's story of redeeming broken, lost, evil people in a lost and broken, evil world. Because of that, I want to make sure and put caution to this idea of Ecclesiastes. Solomon's going to be saying things and asking questions, and sometimes commentaries will speak that inappropriately or a misguided view of life. And so we're not to take Ecclesiastes as this powerful truth of saying, wow, Solomon's just so smart. In fact, we need to talk about some key words here that will help us. First, meaningless. It's uh, in your NIV, uh, vanity is actually probably a, a better interpretation in the English. But as we discovered in our teaching cohort, that actually is not necessarily the best picture of this word. Uh, the word hibel, or hivel, actually the way it sounds, but it's spelled hibel. Hivel actually means to, to breathe like a breath when it's cold and it just dissipates. It means vapor. It means vanity, empty. Uh, brief, insubstantial, empty or futile. This is probably the best picture we could use that would define this idea of meaningless because Solomon is going to say this several times throughout this book. Meaningless or vanity is vanity. It's all vanity. Life is vanity. Life is meaningless. He could be saying in, another, in, in a different way to look at it is that life is like a vapor. Life is but a breath, and then it just dissipates and it's gone. You can see even by this terminology how Solomon is feeling so weighted down by the reality of life. Wisdom is another term, and want to be cautious to, to understand that there are two different types of wisdom. The wisdom spoken of that, that, that Solomon is talking about in this book is the skillful thought in war, administration, religious, and ethical affairs. If you remember... In 1 Kings, he asks for wisdom of what kind? To be able to rule the people of Israel. I think this is really important for us to note because often, and I've made that mistake, that we've said that Solomon is the wisest of all, and I, sometimes I believe we get this idea that Solomon is wise like God. Now, I have to be careful there because he's, he's not wise like God. God has given him some great wisdom to be unequaled like any other ruler in time, but it's not God's wisdom. First Corinthians, Paul will say it this way, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. 
even Solomon. And the weakness of God is stronger than any human strength, even Solomon. Even though Solomon was, was greatly wise, wealthy beyond imagination, and so powerful, we have to just keep in perspective the wisdom he's speaking of is still human wisdom. All right? Another phrase that we have to watch is this, the teacher. And this will happen throughout the book. The teacher uh, really means the preacher. Uh, it's where the title uh, Ecclesiastes comes from because it's, uh, it's ecclesia. It's the word for church or gathering or the assembly. And typically ecclesia was used in calling the gathering together in a village and saying, I have something to say. And so he responds or he's using himself as this name of the teacher. The word also, though, carries with it, I love what Wearsby said, with the idea of debating, not so much with listeners as with himself. So the book of Ecclesiastes is going to be this debate, not with people, but in his own mind and heart. For us this morning, this is just a great, this has relevance for us. Because how many times have you been up in the morning or evening or sometime in the day and had that inner dialogue about life? What is it about? Why am I here? Am I really significant? Does it make a difference what I do and don't do? These are questions that, that Solomon, even in the midst of the wisdom he's been given, is asking himself. And so we felt, wow, what a great what a great gift for us to be able to look at where Solomon's at and begin to then take in maybe some of that, those questions and ask ourselves those same questions. He will also use this phrase, under the sun, about 29 times, and it means to, to reflect really on earth or looking at life from a human perspective. And so when he says, under the sun, means not from a heavenly perspective, but from an earthly perspective. Ecclesiastes could be broken up in three ways. Again, commentaries do it many different ways. This was from Wearsby. I, I tend to like Wearsby because he makes it a very common way to understand it. Um, sometimes it could be uh, a little bit too light, but I love how he did this. It says, the problem declared uh, are in chapters 1 and 2, and we're going to be that from this week and next week. The problem discussed. Remember, it's not a discussion with people. It's kind of his own discussion with himself between 3 and 10. And then this problem decided. He kind of lands on the problem of exactly what's going on. Now, all of this I'm trying to give you is perspective before we dive into the text. Campbell Morgan says it this way. This man had been living through all these experiences under the sun, conserved with nothing above the sun until there came a moment in which he had seen the whole of life. And there was something over the sun. And it's only as a man takes account of which is over the sun as well as that which is under the sun that things under the sun are seen in their true light. This is a mouthful, but I thought this was so powerful because Solomon finally is pulling back and realizing all of the things under the sun that he had accomplished do not give him the meaning of life that he has to look above the sun. In a metaphorically kind of way, he has to look beyond earth and look for who's in charge 
And it's moving back away from arrogance to that humble posture. And friends, that's what we do as a church. We gather and we try to find once again that humble posture for us to recognize who is above the sun. Who is the sun? And we try to remind ourselves because all week we're pulled back into the under the sun world. Into that, into that place that talks about what really matters as the world perceives it. And we can forget, I can forget, very quickly. So let's dive in. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, we're just going to go through this this morning. And this is, uh, that was all set up for you for the whole series. But this, this morning, this passage uh, in chapter 1, uh, it, it's not necessarily very deep. Uh, but it's an interesting beginning to a book that you'd write. The words of the teacher, Solomon himself, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, hebel or hevel means vapor. Uh, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? You ever ask that question? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. I mean, Solomon is making some statements that we know that are true. But what you find is Solomon is making some statements about Things that he knows are true. It's really that Solomon's leaning into the intellect of what he has. He continues on and says, All things are wearisome. More than one can say, The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. And there is nothing new under the sun. Have you ever heard that phrase? No idea is a new idea. In Solomon, amidst all the things that he has and he has done, he has built amazing cities. I've gotten to be in some of them that still stand today. The wealth, the wisdom, I mean, he's remembered even to this day. Think about that. And yet here is where he's at in his life. Nothing new is under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Listen to the heart of where he's at. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Can you just sense the defeat? Just think for a moment, how many of us daydream or, or think about what is it that we're going to pursue that's going to complete our happiness. You ever think about that? It could be just a little bit more money. could be just a little bit bigger home. It could be that cabin. It could be that boat. could be that trip. I mean, we're not much different from where Solomon's at. There's that place where we kind of, we long to find Something that's going to make us happy. Solomon's in this place of recognizing and having the chance that he's pursued it all. He's pursued literally everything that we could probably imagine in this room that we would want to make us happy on this earth. 
He's pursued it all, and here's where he lands. Does it really matter? It's a vapor. It's, it's, it's kind of an ugly, dark place as we see where Solomon's at. Someone that we would hold up as being given the wisdom that God gave him and given that authority and that power. You almost think of it a very irresponsible, almost a despairing place of saying, maybe he should be dismissed. Verse 12, it says, I, the teacher, again, Solomon speaking of himself, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Now, just for a moment, let's think about this. Solomon has been given great wisdom. We know that it's not wisdom equal to God's, but he's been given amazing earthly wisdom, probably with great ability to study much of life, to probably understand much of life, to be able to write 3,000 proverbs, to, uh, to, to rule as he ruled. Again, secular writers will say that Solomon's wisdom was surpassing even his wealth. His wealth was amazing. But people came from all over the world to see the wisdom that this man had. He studied it all. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Here's a man who studied it all and really, for lack of a better term, has become the most knowledgeable person about life. And he finds himself still empty. Sometimes I think we think if we just know a little bit more, we'll have life figured out. If we could just know a little bit more about God, a little bit more about life, a little bit more about the answers of science, maybe, just maybe then, we'll feel a clarity. The fog will dissipate, and I'll just see much clearer. Verse 15, it says, what, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Solomon is defeated. He's at a place of recognizing that his knowledge isn't the answer. Verse 16 says, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ever ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge, and then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of the madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is chasing after the wind, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and the more knowledge, the more grief. Solomon just lands in this first chapter for us simply this morning, that knowing it all does not bring the meaning to life. That knowing all the answers about life doesn't give you clarity. That being super smart or super intellectual, while those are not bad things to pursue, he's saying, listen, this is something that is not going to give you that fulfillment. It's like a breath. Chasing knowledge will not bring that. The proverb that he writes earlier in his years, listen to this one, I think how profound it is that Solomon would write this and yet at the end of his life say something completely opposite. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. 
The word here is less about knowing all the aspects of who God is. The word here actually refers more to this idea of having a relationship with the Creator, with God. Remember we said arrogance is losing sight of reality and of oneself, and humility is having a clarity about who we really are. Solomon, in the beginning of his life, writes something that probably he should have gone back to, and we'll find that he will at the end of Ecclesiastes, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Part of church culture is that we gather in here to be, we're to be reverent. Why are we to be reverent? Not because of a building. This is simply a campus, friends. Not because of stained glass, not because of programs. We are to be in a fearful awe and reverence of the one that we worship and follow. That can mean in your living room. That can mean in your study. That means wherever and whenever you remember who he is. That kind of worship should come out, not just in our songs as we sing, but even in our posture, even in how we pray, even in how we speak about the Holy One. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is not about knowing answers about God. It's beginning to know him. I had the privilege of, of officiating two wedding ceremonies this weekend, this weekend. And both times as those couples came forward and I stood right there in front of them as they were right in front of me, never once did I give a quiz and say, how well do you know this partner? I mean, I just went through my wedding anniversary of 25 years and recognizing how much I did not know my wife when we first got married. And I, and I realized as they're standing up there, how well do they know each other? They don't know each other that well. But that's not an issue for the whole room, is it? What everyone wants to know is what? Do you love them? And are you committing and making a covenant to love them? I find that very fascinating because this second couple, and I recognize, I look back, you know, now at 50, 25 years, feel like you're an expert, you know, you know, you know how to do it. And, and thinking to myself, and you don't say that at a wedding, wedding ceremony, like, oh man, they have no idea. <laughs> you know, they have no idea what they're in for. It's really love and beautiful right now and wedding dresses and all that. You know, wait till bills can't be paid. Wait till trust is broken. And so we get this picture of it's less about knowledge, it's about a commitment to love. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the apex, it's not the, the peak, it's just a starting point. Because fearing God means, as John Dixon said last week, you can question God. Why, God? Why? And when we ask that question, we're really making a proclamation of his lordship, aren't we? Do you know him this morning? I think we have a vi I love our church body, and that means us. Not this facility. I love what God's given us, but... This is a campus, and you are the church. I love you. But the question I have for many of you this morning, do you know him? Are you 
just trying to operate in a religious way, and that means you're trying to just to get to know more about God, that's not bad, but answers will not lead you to God. It begins with the humility of understanding who he is. It's a fear of God. I had a gal this week. It was so beautiful. She doesn't, she's, she's been coming to our church, and she might even be here this morning, but she's struggling to make that step. And really it's, if you're here this morning, I'm talking to her, but I'm talking to all of you who don't know him. It's really a commitment to love him. More answers won't give you that clarity. It's going to be that recognition of who he is above the sun. He controls everything under the sun. This is where we find ourselves with Solomon this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says that we're not insignificant. We're not just a vapor. That when we know God and begin that journey of loving him and committed to loving him, it says, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not a vapor. It's not in vain. It has purpose. When you know the Father, he gives you purpose. Your life isn't empty. Look at 1 Peter 2.9. But you are chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You have purpose that you may declare the praises of him who called you out. In other words, you've been created to love him, and God wants to hear his creation give him glory in music, in conversation, in reading, in how we serve. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork. Translation, God's poems, poems to be written. He's written them on our hearts to do good works. Your life is not meaningless. Matthew 5, 13 and 14, you are the salt of the earth. You bring a flavor and a preservation to its holiness. You are the light of the world. We know that's not on our own, right? It's not because of our works. If light and salt were up to Troy, we'd be in trouble. If it was up to you, we'd be in trouble. But because we humble ourselves before the Father and and like a wedding ceremony, we make a covenant to God saying, I am choosing to surrender my life and pursue you as my love. That's the beginning of wisdom. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit. You have purpose. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus marks a new era of God's dealing with the world. He intends nothing less than the total reclaiming of his good creation, damaged by human folly, sin, and death. Remember, John last week said, sin distorted all of creation, and it distorted us. And God sending his son is the gift to begin the restoration the beginning of wisdom is fearing and knowing who God is above the sun. And so we claim resurrection. We claim the death of Christ. We do that, ceremonially, we do that through baptism. And, and our response this morning is going to be twofold. Some of you don't know him. And you need maybe for the first time to make that commitment like those young couples this week. 
to stand up. Say, God, I don't know all the answers, but I'm committing to love and follow you. I am, I am humbling myself before you. And then when you make that claim, it says in Scripture that we are to enter into baptism. Now, friends, I want to just make for clarity speaking, baptism is not something you do for God. You're not doing God a religious favor. It's not checking it off the religious box that, God, look what I just did for you. I'm doing this for you. This is not that. Friends, it is a a ceremony that God has set up for us to enter into that he's already done for us. It is symbolic. And it is you enter into baptism because of what Jesus did for you. Romans 6, the translation is uh, the version of Scripture called The Voice. Not the TV show, by the way, but an actual Bible. Did someone forget to tell you that when you were initiated into Jesus, the anointed through baptism, ceremonial washing, we entered into his death? You are entering into that relationship and dying. That old self is going away. Therefore, we were buried with him through his baptism into death. So just as God the Father in all his glory resurrected the anointed one, we too might confidently uh, walk confidently out of the grave into new life. In other words, you die. You surrender. You have a new life. What wisdom does Solomon offer us this morning? You know what wisdom he offers? That knowledge does not bring meaning. But knowing the creator will bring clarity and purpose to your life. This morning we're going to go to baptism and we typically go to communion, but this morning our response is baptism. And so I'm just going to have you, as Bobby comes up, we're going to get ready. There's some of you this morning, though, that don't know God. You've pretended that you've known God because you thought knowing God was just doing a bunch of religious things. And the Bible's clear that God is not a fan of religion. He is absolutely about relationship. And so this morning, if the picture for you is that you've not made that covenant of almost that picture of like standing at the altar with a bride and saying, I'm yours, that's what he's asking for this morning. And so I'm just going to ask for you to bow your heads this morning, and I'm going to pray for you. And if, if you are one this morning that wants to stand, and friends, it's standing before heaven, not before us. But you want to stand to know God and making that claim of humbly beginning to follow him. You can do that this morning. Just stand right where you're sitting, and I'm going to pray for you. If you would do that this morning, if you don't know God, you've never made that commitment. Would you just stand? The scripture says it's just the clarity is this. That it says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus, God called Christ to this earth and raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And it says that you profess that with your lips. And so as you're standing, all I'm going to ask you to do is just to pray. You tell God your commitment. Imagine yourself at that altar with Christ saying, I'm making a covenant to be yours.
Will you be Lord of my life? Father, as these are standing, Father, I pray and just thank God that you have captured uh, the hearts of two this morning, Father, that just long to know you. I pray that, Lord, as they begin to kneel and humble themselves before you, begin to fill them with purpose. Fill them with a sense of understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we do baptism here, and often we do sign-ups, and you guys are really bad at sign-ups, because usually there's hardly anybody that signs up. Do we have anybody signed up? I don't even know if we we have one. And then there's like everybody that comes. Uh, The scripture says that you're to respond in baptism, that you're entering into that promise. And we here at Community do that around music and song, and so we'll have you get to your feet. So will you stand with me, and if you've not been baptized, and you've not entered into that promise that Jesus offers us into his death, would you just come forward right here to the right? One of the elders will be there, and you can come dressed as you are. We'll give you a shirt, and we can celebrate that together. Amen? Amen. Let's worship our King.